Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 43? A couple of weeks back, we had looked at Psalm 42. I had made the statement that Psalm Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are meant to go together. And the reason why is that as you look at these several psalms all the way till Psalm uh, 49, you'll notice they all say that they are a psalm of the sons of Korah, except for Psalm 43. And so it is believed that they go together. And also, the Psalm 43 concludes with the same words that Psalm 42 does. And so actually, Psalm 42 through Psalm 49 really are meant to be kept together. Now, There is one issue that we did not deal with when we looked at Psalm 42, and that is the sons of Korah. And I I realized that midway through the sermon, I was replacing the sons of Korah with David. And if you thought maybe I had lost my mind and gotten confused, while that might have been true, that's not actually what was going on, is we don't know who the sons of Korah were. And if you look at the, the phrase or the, that title of the sons of Korah and this collective group, what we know about them is that they were from the tribe of Levi. We see that in First Chronicles chapter 16. And then by Second Chronicles, we see that the sons of Korah were the singers. They were singers in the temple. So it's this group. Most believe that what we're reading would have been something by David, and so the theories go, various theories, are that this is David writing for the sons of Korah to lead music. So in other words, David writes something, gives it to the sons of Korah, here, sing this, or this is the sons of Korah relating uh, a story of David um, and putting it to song. Uh, we don't know, and we'll find out one day, but what makes sense to me is that we're reading uh, David's um, experiences here in these psalms, and that they are given to the sons of Korah, that they would be sung in a time of worship. Now, what you'll notice as we begin in Psalm 42, all the way to Psalm 49, there's actually a progression that we need to see that groups all of these psalms together, and it begins with this. Is This is book two of the Psalter. And David, if it is David, has been removed from Jerusalem. And so he could. it could have been when he was removed, uh, being chased by Saul. It could have been when he was running from Absalom. Uh, we don't know what exactly the situation was, but David is outside of Jerusalem, You see that in Psalm 42 where he says, When shall I come and appear before God? And that is speaking of his wanting, his desire to be in the presence of God. In verse 5 he says, uh, I for I shall again praise him. In verse 5 he says, He desires to be back with his people, worshiping God there in Jerusalem. In chapter Psalm 43, we see that he's still not there. He says, let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. That is to let me be back in Jerusalem. When you get to Psalm 44, in verse 9, he still has these statements of being rejected by God, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. 
But then in verse in Psalm 45, there begins to be a change in the psalmist. My heart overflows in verse 1 with a pleasing theme. In Psalm 46, see, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When you get to Psalm 47, he's calling for the people to clap your hands, all people shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the bride of Jacob, whom he loves. It seems that this change has brought David back to a period of worship. In Psalm 48, he says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. And so what you see in Psalm 42, his desire to be back in worship in Jerusalem, even leading the people in it, he has been, that has been taken from him. You see a progression as you walk through these Psalms where God has restored him and answered his prayers to return to worship. But as we look at Psalm 43 in its, in its whole, he is still removed from Jerusalem. He still desires to be in, in Jerusalem and to return to worship. We see two petitions. He asks for vindication, and he asks that God would lead him back to Jerusalem. It's hard to imagine being cast out of public worship in the same sense that David was. Even, even during the time when the, the government said you couldn't gather and sing, we were really untouched by that. There was no one coming and knocking on our doors and checking on us. It wasn't like in Canada where you had churches and pastors arrested for attempting to gather and worship. So in many ways, that's hard for us to conceptualize exactly what that would be like to be forced out of public worship. But there are circumstances that sometimes draw us away from the corporate worship of God with His people and under the means of His grace. And so as we begin to read Psalm 43, let me ask, when you miss it, do you miss it? That's that's the question. Because as we look at the Psalter here and we look at Psalm 43, we really begin to see the heart of one that desires worship. So let us hear this word of God in Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Again, there's two pleas in this psalm. The first is a plea for vindication, and the second is a plea to worship and in this first plea, one thing that you do see is that the psalmist's reliance, trust, and hope 
on God is rock solid despite seeming like he was rejected by God. While he faces enemies and he seeks deliverance, as he feels all alone, he still nonetheless never loses his reliance upon God, even in the sense in where he says to God, why have you rejected me? He asks for vindication, though, you'll notice. He says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. And vindicate here means it refers to judgment. He's asking God, will you decide this? Will you settle this? Will you make judgment on me regarding this? And obviously people are accusing him. People were taunting him, mocking him. Where is your God at? And so he's asking God to vindicate him now before people. But why does he ask God to judge him? It's very simple. Others cannot see his heart. Others cannot see his motives. Others cannot see his inner desires that we have seen, where his desire is to be in worship, to be restored to his people. And so he asks God, will you come and will you settle this? Charles Spurgeon says this of calling God to judge our motives. He says, I can laugh at human misrepresentation if my conscience knows that thou art on my side. So he calls God to vindicate him, knowing that that is the only opinion that matters. That's the only verdict that will stand. That's the only decision that will stand the test of time. And so he calls God to vindicate him, and then further defend, he says, my cause against an ungodly people. That is, take action, take an offensive action against people that would come against me. Now, the psalmist's cause is defined by who he was against. Notice what he says, defend my cause. You could, you could have a lot of causes that you're for that would be not worthy of defending by God. But he says, defend my cause, and it's defined by this. It's against an ungodly people. It's opposite of those that are faithful to Yahweh. It's those that would be walking in a different direction than the psalmist is walking. It would be those that are opposed to God. And he's calling, God, would you take action against these people that are actually against you? And he says what they are. He says they're deceitful. And they're unjust. He says, rescue me from those that are deceitful. What does it mean to be deceitful? It is the one that is lives to trick or create fraud to deceive others for their own personal gain. That's what it means to be ungodly. Those that are unjust, those that pervert justice. Again, we, we continually come back to this theme of justice in the Scripture. And there's a call for justice today. 
Woe to the man that perverts justice. It is ungodly to pervert justice. He defines ungodliness by deceit, ungodliness by an injustice. An unjust man is the very definition of what it means to be ungodly. These are the things that are opposite to godliness. These are the things that were opposite to his own cause. And so he calls God to judge him, to vindicate him. The ungodly do not have the faculty or ability to rightly judge. Now, that brings up an interesting question. Does that mean an unregenerate man cannot rightly judge? Well, so far as they govern and judge according to God's law in a court of law, then yes, they can. But there's always some sort of ulterior motive that's leading them. You think of Pilate who had Roman law, Roman laws were good laws. They were based on what I would say was God had revealed in the heart of man as being laws that should govern people. Pilate abused it. He sentenced an innocent man, the only innocent man to ever walk the earth, to death. So the unrighteous, while they may have God's law written upon their heart, And while many that are unrighteous have the sword of governance, and while there are many that are unrighteous that will in this life stand in judgment over you and over the church, they can't actually rightly judge. And so the psalmist says, Lord, will you judge me? You know, when judged by the ungodly, you remember he was mocked. Where's your God at? Remember, there's a greater judge. And his judgment is what counts. And there's something else here that I want us to take note of, which goes so counter to our entire human condition. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount... It makes the whole point of this, and that is this, is the psalmist does not return with their own weapons to defend himself. He doesn't defend himself with deceit. He does not return uh, the favor by being unjust, but rather he entrusts himself to God. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ when reviled, he did not revile in turn, but kept entrusting himself to his Father. And to say, God, will you vindicate me in this? Will you judge this situation? I have to tell you, there's something comforting in that. And no doubt there was something comforting in this for him as well. And perhaps you've been there where you were judged by an outside court that doesn't have the full story, and you're just pleading to God, but God, you know the reality of this. And there's something comforting in that. But, but even when God knows the full story, and God does know the full story, and you ask God to vindicate you and judge you, that doesn't mean that there's not consequences that come with the judgment of ungodly people. 
If this is David, David's in the wilderness. There was consequences he faced from ungodly people. Many years ago, I had a friend that was a pastor. And he was made, accusations were made against him, not accusations that it should have made him step down from being a pastor at all. They were just really benign. But people had it out for him. And he, he, was, he was in the right. But the accusations just kept growing, or they kept circling around this one accusation. Even though he was in the right, it ended his ministry there in that place. The Lord has since vindicated him. But there were still consequences to it that caused pain. That was a change of plans. He wasn't expecting that. Hindsight, I, I think that where he's at now, he would be very thankful for what the Lord did, even though he went through the pain and probably thought, Lord, why are you rejecting me now? Why, why does it seem like these people are judging me and everyone's listening to them? And when you see the bigger picture of it, you oftentimes come to a greater understanding. And so there's something comforting here that when there's an ungodly people that make accusations, there's something comforting in just saying, Lord, you know, will you judge this situation? And the reason he asked God for this is found in verse 2. For, that's giving us the purpose for it. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. I take shelter in you. And the reason for his comfort in God is because this is his God. And this is the marrow of the prayer. Rather than fighting this battle in his own strength, or in his own means, or with some form of retaliation, he trusts in the Lord. Notice what he says, you are the God in whom I take refuge. That's an amazing statement because he follows it with, why have you rejected me? But yet he said just now, you are my God. I take refuge in you. So despite the circumstances, his hope and trust in who God is does not wane. And so despite confidence in his relationship with God, he nonetheless believes he is, we see he says, been cast off. Why have you rejected me? It's an interesting phrase. It means to be abominable sometimes used for festering, to stink. Why do I stink before you, God? Why am I festering in your sight, is the question. But he's already said God is his God. And as he says that God is my God in whom I take refuge, he at the same time states things that seem like God has abandoned him, which he knows is impossible. It is impossible if you stand in Christ for God to abandon you. Did you catch that? If you are in Christ, it is absolutely impossible for God to ever abandon you. That would be for God to cease being God. That's why I say it's impossible. 
It would be God to become torn apart Himself in order for God to abandon His own. God doesn't ever abandon His own. You read in Lamentations, in Lamentations chapter 3, it, it turns the corner. It's a turning point from crying out that how they are been destitute and abandoned to a turn of hope in chapter 3. And we read this in verse 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love, for He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in a lawsuit the Lord does not approve. He will not abandon His own. He will not cast them off forever. But you might experience the Lord's discipline. You might experience the Lord doing, bringing about circumstances in your life to shape you as He wants to shape you. But what we can never lose sight of is that in that shaping, in that discipline, we are not abandoned by God. Let me tell you why. John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All those that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son, and when they come to the Son, the Son will never, ever cast them out. So listen to this. Being kept by the Lord is not dependent upon us. Being kept by the Lord is not even dependent upon your faithfulness. It's based upon the Lord's sovereign election and safekeeping of you. Let me tell you, that is the greatest comfort you can have because what if I sin too great? Your sin is not greater than His grace. What if I mess up and I backslide? Do you think that your sin is so great that when Christ has bought you with your blood and said you are forgiven, you are justified, here's my righteousness that you can undo what God has done? What if I'm not perfect? Well, we're not. But our imperfection cannot overthrow the sovereign election of the Lord. Those whom the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son, and the Son will never, ever cast them away. So if you ever can relate to this of, it seems like the Lord has rejected me, and you look to the cross where you find assurance. You look to the Lord Jesus in whom will keep you. And we don't know why the secret providence of the Lord takes place in which we experience what's stated here. He says, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Why have you rejected me? Why is he in this position? Well, we don't know the exact details. God's uh, secret providence is God's secret providence. 
And I know you've probably at times in your life wondered, why am I going through this? One of the things is, though, we can see is God is not moved to action by us. Rather, He moves us to action. And perhaps it is that the best way that, it is always the best way, His way, but the best way this happens is that sometimes we go through circumstances that are uncomfortable, like being in a wilderness and away, like the psalmist was. But we don't move God. God moves us. God is the unmoved mover of all things. And He works mysteriously for our benefit in His providence. And here it is. Through this process, the psalmist is brought closer to God through circumstance. Through this horrible mocking, being alienated, being cast off, feeling rejected, he's actually brought closer to God throughout the whole process. I think in eternity when he looks back, yeah, that was well worth it. Even in the moment where it's painful. So this is a testimony of hardship and drawing close to God. He goes on and begins his second plea in verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. This is a, a plea to go back to Jerusalem for him to worship. That's what the holy hill there to the dwelling place of God where God would have met with his people in the tabernacle in the holy of holies. And he desires to go back to that. So as you begin to reflect upon this, where he wants to go back to worship, he has already stated that in Psalm 42. Where do these desires come from? To worship. Now just reflect on this for a second with me. The psalmist has a desire to worship. Let's put this in our modern context of why sometimes people like to worship. And I'm using the word worship loosely here. One may like the emotionalism that comes with it, especially in big productions where there's lights that are blue that elicit certain feelings and emotions in you and certain dynamics in music. There might be an emotionalism or there might be some sort of stimulation from it. And that might be what drives a person. But that's not the case with the psalmist, is it? It's not for mere emotionalism. It's not to be stimulated by it. He wants worship according to God's word. Look what he says in verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. He calls for light and truth to guide him. Specifically, what he's asking for is a return to the standards of worship that Moses gave the children of Israel. This is how you are to worship me, God said. And he's saying, I want that. God had prescribed a certain way in which he was to be approached. 
And it wasn't according to human invention. It wasn't according to the mind of man. It was according to what God dictated and how he should be approached. God demands worship, and God tells us how we are to approach him in worship. In fact, when you look at the result of defying God's order for worship, what happened in the Old Testament often and even in the New Testament? Well, people died. God takes it very seriously. And so his desire is to be back in that corporate worship in Psalm 42, verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I could go out with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He wants to return to that corporate worship that God has called him to. And so this is not some emotional need in the psalmist. This is the ardent desire of a man in relationship with God. He says, I need to worship corporately with the Lord's people. Then, he says in verse 4, I will go to the altar when you have led me. Notice, I think what qualifies this desire is my God, my exceeding joy. He calls God his exceeding joy. While he may have joy in temporal things, again, if this is David, I'm sure he enjoyed the life he had in Jerusalem and received a lot of joy in the things that he had. But his joy is in the Lord. His exceeding joy is is in the Lord. The Lord alone can experience, in the Lord alone can he experience true satisfaction. This might seem like an odd phrase to say exceeding joy in worship, but it's actually an aspect of true worship that needs to be present in the worshiper. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you look at the, the curses upon the people. Beginning in verse 45 of Deuteronomy 28, it says, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and wonder against you and your offspring. Now, we know that the children of Israel um, did not follow God's commands, and so they lost the land. And we, we oftentimes equate it just purely with, well, they weren't obedient to God's revealed law. And so because they weren't obedient, God used other nations to punish them, to throw them into exile. But that's not all. There was a problem of worship. Look at because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. He hands them over because there wasn't a true heart engaged in worship. And uh, here's, the, here's the reality that as Christians we must faith, face is this, is that an unregenerate heart cannot rightly worship God, nor worship God. They'll worship something. Worship is embedded into every single human soul, which is why all humans worship something. There's no civilization that lacks worship. There's just many people that lack 
right worship. Right worship is God reveals himself and we respond to it, which is why the center of worship is the proclamation of God's word, because therein God reveals himself. That's right worship. And a truly engaged heart is a heart of joy in that. And so his plea is, lead me in worship. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. I hope you catch the glimpse of Christ we have here. The Lord Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The greater son of David is the light that he calls for. The greater son of David is also the truth that he calls for when the Lord Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is that light. Jesus is that truth he is calling for. Now, the reality is this, is sometimes we lack this desire, or sometimes it just seems completely untenable. You see what he says as a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you. That sometimes seems unrelatable. Sometimes it seems like we lack that desire. Perhaps it's because of people, because of busyness. Whatever the excuse, it's not entirely 100% relatable to us that we always have that exceeding joy and that desire. But the Lord Jesus Christ did. His greatest desire was to fulfill the will of His Father. And He always had that desire. That desire that we lack, he has in our place. Not only did the Lord Jesus positively fulfill the law, but he did it with a right heart. And so the psalmist concludes with the question that he asked several times in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And again, I said this last time, is that Calvin and Spurgeon say this is the two voices of David. He asks the question, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? He says, hope in God, for shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He has a steadfast assurance of worship. You know, as we think about this, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. How easy it is when we are faced with turmoil and stress to turn to worldly comforts. But I want you to notice what the psalmist does in those points. A commentator, James Hamilton, gives these these things for our consideration. He says this, He thirsted for God as the source of satisfaction, implicitly rejecting other comforts and allegiances. So when we're faced with that stress, when we're faced with that turmoil, where do we turn for? To to whom do we turn? His satisfaction was found in God alone. 
Second thing is this, is that the psalmist remembered the joy he had experienced in public worship as a motivation to return to it. He looked back on the sweet remembrances he had of worship with his people, of leading them in it. Instead of looking to other devices, the third thing is is he remembered God. You see that in verse 6 of Psalm 42, where he says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Even, he says, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar, that is, from far away on this little mountain, I remember you. Fourth, he meditated the depths of the waters and waves of God's justice. You see this in verse 7. He says, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's contemplating God's justice in circumstances. In turmoil, do you ever reflect on the justice of God, or do we only focus in on what's happening around us? The fifth thing is this, he recognized God's steadfast love in the day and sang God's praises at night. He says in verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. In other words, he he begins his day with God and he closes his day with God. And so it's sandwiching his, his existence night and day with the Lord God. Another thing is, is that he cried out asking why. One of the things about the Psalms that it teaches us is it's okay to go to God and say, Why is this happening to me? Why has this happened? The psalmist does it all over the place. He says in verse 9, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He says it again in Psalm 43. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? You can find that over and over again. Why, God, has this happened? And specifically, he says, Why have you done this? He cries out to God asking him why. Why is it like this? The seventh thing he does is this, is he cried out to God for vindication. God, will you judge in this situation? He asked God to send out his light and truth to lead him home to worship. He promises to worship God in accordance with the Bible's instructions. And he admonished himself for his sunken soul and called himself to wait trusting that, again, he would have the joy of worship. Notice how he closes it. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If this was life-threatening, if this was something that he thought could have ended his life, I will worship God in eternity or I will worship him back in Jerusalem is his point. What a prayer. I was speaking with an elderly saint today, and her words to me were, I just want to go home. And she says, whether it's home with the Lord, or it's home to my home, I just want to go home where I will be with the Lord either way. 
That's basically what the psalmist is saying. I want to be with the Lord and praise him again. Where do you turn in times of sorrow? Where do you go in times of suffering? Where is it that you go when there's turmoil in life, when life seems like it's just collapsing in around you? Where is your solace? Where is your comfort? Let me tell you that it must be in the Lord Jesus because if it's anywhere else, it falls infinitely short of the true joy, peace, and comfort that is given to us in Christ, even in the midst of great sorrow. Heavenly Father,